Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. A few weeks ago, we sent out a request on Twitter asking what questions you have about the pandemic now that we have a vaccine. And boy, did you all deliver! So today, we're devoting the whole episode to your questions. And to answer them, I'm joined by 538 senior science writer Maggie Kurth, who's been tracking down answers to your questions for the past few weeks. Maggie, welcome back to the show. Hi, and thank you for having me. This has been a lot of really amazing questions. Well, I'm so excited to find out what you've been learning. Yeah, I was excited to find out too. A lot of these things are stuff that I had been wondering about. So it's been really good to kind of just have a excuse to go digging into things. For sure. Same. So a lot of our listeners have asked when a coronavirus vaccine will be available to them. So I thought that might be a good place to start since I know that's a question so many of us have right now. Messages in your mailbox. My name is Chris Cullen from Phoenix. My wife is 28 weeks pregnant. What do we know about when, how pregnant women and infants will be able to get a safe and effective vaccine? Hi, I'm Dan M. What's the best guess timetable for kids aged zero to 10 to get their vaccine? My name is Max and I am a healthy 18 year old but with lingering asthma. My question is what would be a good timeline for when I can take the coronavirus vaccine? Hello, I'm Kamla. I am type 2 diabetic. What are my chances of getting my vaccine in the next two months? So Maggie, why don't we start with those who are pregnant and kids? What do we know about the vaccine availability timeline for those people? Well, so vaccine clinical trials, they haven't so far included pregnant or lactating women, if we want to just kind of start with that category. Um, But I did talk to Dr. Rebecca Weintraub from the Harvard Medical School about some of this. The mRNA vaccines are not considered live viruses and therefore not suspected to be a risk to the breastfeeding infant. So there was no restrictions placed on pregnant or lactating women. Instead, it was clear while there's no data, there's a tremendous optimism that there's likely no risk to the breastfeeding infant. So many women now are opting in, including healthcare professionals, to receive the COVID-19 vaccine once it's offered. And I think it's really important to kind of understand that a lot of this is sort of par for the course. Pretty much everything has not been tested in pregnant and lactating women because of that ethical risk of like, who can you get to sign up to test drugs on a fetus? You know, it's kind of a difficult thing. So what we kind of have to rely on are indirect evidence, the kind of things that Dr. Weintraub is talking about. You know, there is no reason for us to suspect that this is going to be a problem. We have to kind of consider consider the risk in balance with the risk of COVID itself. I mean, we know that pregnant women are at an increased risk for severe COVID. And so it's going to be up to women themselves to choose whether or not to get vaccinated. The CDC is recommending right now that you just talk to your healthcare professional and kind of figure out how to make that balance for yourself. I will say I've already started seeing old friends of mine from college and high school um, who are uh, medical professionals um, and who are lactating, posting on social media platforms um, about why they have chosen to get the vaccine, even though, you know, the vaccine hasn't necessarily been tested on them. But again, it's still everyone's own choice. You know, it's a choice you make for yourself. Like 
pregnant women, children are a subpopulation that's often not included in research trials. In fact, up until 1997, most of the drugs we gave to kids had never actually been tested on kids to figure out what the proper dosing for them should be. And it, people had really not grasped how different the proper dosing could be. It's not just that kids are small adults. You can't just scale it down that way because it's not just the size of the body. It's also how your metabolism works. I will say that sort of the one exception to that rule is vaccines. Because we routinely give vaccines to kids and even infants, we have actually done pretty extensive testing on vaccines in particular in, in kids, in people under 18. Right. And since, since 1997, since those new laws kind of went into effect that started to um, incentivize testing drugs in younger populations. That's really changed a lot since then as well. But it's just one of those things where, like, I think we take for granted sometimes that we know how things work in everybody. And sometimes we don't. And it just takes time to figure out those different subpopulations. Right now, the Pfizer vaccine has been tested in kids down to age 16. Um, and the Moderna vaccine is down to age 18. But below that, that's still stuff that's in clinical trials. Both Pfizer and Moderna have started those trials for kids 12 and up, but that's going to take some time. Um, right now, most of what we have is some data from Pfizer on about 100 kids who are between the ages of 12 and 15. They didn't find any safety concerns. There's other vaccines that have also been doing trials with children. AstraZeneca had some of those in the UK, but that subgroup was actually dropped from the trials in mid-December, and no one's really sure exactly why that happened yet. So what about everyone else? What's the plan for figuring out the order of vaccine distribution in the general population? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Dr. Weintraub was actually really clear on this. There is not a national plan to tell you it's your turn <laughs> for the vaccine. What's likely going to happen is states will create their own messaging and then primary care providers will do tailored outreach to vulnerable populations within those subpopulations. So that sounds bad, but yeah, it's... it does sound bad. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really bad. Um, but it's actually this, you know, it's really complex issue because you have you have all of these different things that are sort of competing both scientifically and ethically, you know, you want to have equity, you want to have racial and ethnic justice be a part of this, you want to have the people who are most at risk, you know, getting vaccinated earlier. But like, how do you decide what risk is like, it's, it's actually a really complicated thing. So what you've ended up with is the National Academies of Science um, has put together this framework that then they give to the states and then the states can kind of use that to figure out vaccine allocation on a state by state basis. And this framework helps states in two specific ways. It helps them estimate the populations that the National Academies recommended you sequence and then figure out what is your allocation approach? Are you going to actually allocate based on the population, so adults over the age of 16, or are you gonna choose an index towards vulnerability? For example, the social vulnerability index. 
So the social vulnerability index is basically an algorithm. You know, we're trying to account for social, economic, racial, and ethnic factors by combining different types of data. You get income, population density, access to transport, race, and from all of these metrics, you compute a total score. And then you rank people from better off to worse off, and then you use that to figure out who should get the vaccine first. I mean, that seems like a pretty good start, right? Yes and no. Um, So (laughs) only about half the states are using the social vulnerability index to determine vaccine allocation. So there is this very real possibility that people who are closer to the head of the line in one state wouldn't be at all in another state, depending on whether your state is using this index or not. There's also a possibility that your state might have you close to the head of the line, but since no one's telling you exactly when you have to come in, you might not know that and you might you know, not get it as early as you really could. And then there's also things that like words that we think have really obvious meanings, but then don't, like frontline workforce, you know, like, what does that mean? It means different things in different states. So Dr. Weintraub told me that in Oklahoma, that means they're starting with inpatient providers in the healthcare system. But in New Mexico, it means starting with the people doing the vaccinations. For states that aren't using the social vulnerability index, have they given a reason why? Do you know? Uh, No, not that I'm aware of. Um, I think it's just a decision-making process that's kind of happening on a state-by-state basis, and there hasn't been a lot of, like, clear explanation of why and why not. Um, I think that there are other issues of equity that are also sort of happening that are a little messy, like the federal government is deciding how many doses to give each state based on total adult population, not on the positivity rate, Mm. or even the population like most affected by the pandemic. So you have like all of these sort of competing issues that it's really not super simple for states to figure out. I talked to Dr. Harold Schmidt about this. He's an expert in medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. So, uh, for example, in New Mexico, three in 10 people are among the nationwide worst off group groups in New Hampshire, it is one in 10. So that means if I'm um, a disadvantaged person in New Hampshire, I have a much better chance of getting a vaccine than in New Mexico. But that's not the fault of the worst of people in New Mexico. And, you know, one other thing to flag here is the way vaccines are allocated to state is that they don't get new ones until they've used up the previous batches, right? And so the incentive is to use them up quickly. We know that communities of color have been hardest hit by this pandemic. We also know that communities of color are, for very good historical reasons, more skeptical about the COVID vaccine because of how they have had medical research tested on them in wildly unethical ways for generations. So how do you how do you thread that inequity? Is it more inequitable? Is it more unethical to have these people who are vulnerable not getting this vaccine first? Or is it more inequitable and unethical to give them the vaccine first and work really hard at giving it to them when they're skeptical of it for good reasons. Like, how do you how do you balance that out? This is not actually a simple thing to do. And so you end up with states doing things like just going for the low hanging fruit, vaccinating the people who come forward so that they can get on to the next batch of vaccines, which ends up meaning 
functionally that you're going to have these whiter, wealthier, less vulnerable populations that end up getting vaccinated first, which just exacerbates the inequalities. On top of that, I have to imagine that this is an extremely difficult thing to track without a federal system to to sort of monitor it. Yeah, I mean, that's another whole thing. People who are getting vaccinated are getting these little vaccination cards. But Harold Schmidt said that it is really tough to keep track of who's gotten which dose of which vaccine. All the vaccines we're currently talking about here are two dose vaccines. So you have to get one shot and another shot. And that means people have to come back. Otherwise, you've wasted the the investment that you made. And what that requires is that you keep track of who has received a first vaccine and a first vaccine of which type. You don't want to give somebody who had a vaccine, didn't really understand which vaccine they got, a shot from a different vaccine. And what issue that raises is, is that many people who are undocumented are at high risk. But if we uh, come up with tracking frameworks that require identifications or that could be perceived as requiring identifications, that could have chilling effects. That could mean that these populations don't want to come forward and get a vaccine. But it's really critical that here we find tracking systems that deal with the problem that we have multiple vaccines in ways that uh, don't penalize people with unclear immigration status, because that's not what helps public health. Public health is helped uh, if we don't mix immigration policy and health care. kind of use a a listener question from earlier as almost a case study and thinking about how a state might figure out who to give a vaccine to first. So we heard earlier from a listener who's had asthma, but he's young, he's only 18, and he's otherwise healthy. So what takes precedence here in terms of him getting the vaccine, his asthma or his age? Yeah, so this is kind of the intersectionality problem of vaccines, right? Uh, Dr. Schmidt calls this overlapping groups problem. You take all your attributes, age, race, comorbidities, and whichever of those things is the worst, the, you know, the thing that puts you in the higher risk, you use that to determine the vaccine group. So for our listener, he's young, he's pretty healthy, but if his state is deeming asthma a moderate risk you know, comorbidity group, that's the group that he would end up in. What if I, a relatively healthy, you know, youngish person, just decided to go earlier than my group? Will anyone be checking if I cut the line? And, you know, will I get punished in any way? What's the deal? (laughs) There is no deal. You know, for the general population, Dr. Schmidt says it's basically an honor system. You know, right now, the vaccine is available within these kind of closed ecosystems of hospital systems and things like that. So you have these administrators deciding who gets precedence, who's going to go first. But once it's out there in the world at Walmart, at Walgreens, at CVS, they're not going to be doing a lot of background checking to determine whether you're there in the right place. You're not going to get a call from your state with the vaccination date and time. You're not going to have somebody telling you it's your turn. And so you're also not going to have somebody telling you it's not your turn. It's going to be all sort of based on us trusting each other to not jump in line and to let the people who need it get it. So if we're healthy and able to socially distance and we aren't exposed to the virus on a regular basis, Dr. Schmidt says that we're just going to have to be a little patient. 
you, you can't just think of yourself, but you have to understand that for many people, a vaccine is a lot more important than for yourself. For people who would just like to see their colleagues at work again, who would just like to go to a concert again, and I'm one of them, I have to be patient, right? Everybody is fed up with this pandemic, no doubt. But the, the key issue is we have to make sure that we get the vaccines first to those people for whom they matter the most, and that is more disadvantaged people. And, you know, actually, you could think of it as having an advantage of waiting for a vaccine. You know, if you're in these lower risk groups, like myself, um, there is some benefit to, you know, being able to sit around and wait for having more options for you that will be available in the next few months. You know, there are other vaccines that are going to be wrapping up their trials and getting their approval, like Johnson and Johnson's and Novavax. So by the time we get around to spring and summer, and the general population actually having access to this stuff, we're going to have not just a lot more choice about which vaccines we take, but also we're going to have a lot more information about what's going on with those vaccines. We'll know more about side effects. We will know more about which vaccines do a better job with which subgroups. And we're going to know a lot more about things like how well these vaccines prevent transmission in addition to just protecting you against being sick. I want to pivot a bit and talk about mutations. Here's Nicole Huber from New York. How do I know that the virus won't have mutated to a differing strain by the time the vaccine is available to the general public? Maggie, that's a really good question, because all of the vaccines are targeting that spike protein on the coronavirus. And there are these new strains in the UK and South Africa that seem to be spreading quickly, um, which we talked about a bit with Dr. Fauci in the last episode. So if the virus is mutating fast enough, could that make these vaccines basically ineffective? So I talked with an immunologist about this, Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya from the University of Arizona, and he says scientists have a lot more information on this virus and whether and how it's mutating. So I mean, what I can say for sure with, with full confidence is that it's not mutating the way that flu does, and I think we've learned that. So the SARS coronavirus 2 is mutating very slowly. I mean, as far as the genetic diversity, it's really low. Um, so that's a good sign. And, you know, its viral life cycle doesn't allow it to swap out big segments of its genome like flu. So that's good because, you know, when we found, say, uh, the targets for antibodies, where when an antibody sticks to the virus, it prevents it from getting inside of cells, you know, there's a good five or six different places that the antibodies can stick to and inhibit infection. We got a lot of questions from readers, particularly because of flu mutations. So everybody knows that you have to get a new flu shot every year. By the time you get the vaccine, the virus may have changed again and the vaccine you get might not work very well. And so everybody is thinking about this in the context of flu. Flu is not a great analogy for COVID because flu viruses are sort of special in the way that they change and how quickly they change. I kind of like to think of it a little bit like that board game Boggle, where you have all those different letter dice in a cup and you shake it around and like dump it out and you can find different words each time. That's sort of the way that flu viruses work. You can have multiple of them infecting the same cell. And once they're in there, they're shaking around like a Boggle cup and something new, something entirely new is coming out. They mutate faster than just about any other virus we have to deal with. They mutate more frequently. COVID is not that. 
Now, that's not to say that a mutation will never happen. We have already seen this virus evolve from the strain that originated in Wuhan. So these UK and South Africa strains are not the first mutations of the virus. But mutations are a lot less likely with SARS-CoV-2 than with other viruses. And even if they do happen, they're not changing the virus all that much. Dr. Warner Green, who's a virologist with the University of San Francisco, explained why. So with uh, SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, uh, its replication cycle is quite different than that of influenza. Um, and interestingly, it has a proofreading enzyme. So when it reproduces itself, it proofreads. And so it makes fewer mistakes than most RNA viruses. So it's less variable than, for example, HIV or hepatitis C. Uh, so it tends to hold its sequence uh, uh, quite faithfully, not perfectly faithfully, but quite faithfully, which is good news for a vaccine uh, a development program for sure. I literally am incapable of tweeting without having an error. I'm constitutionally <laughs> incapable. Even it doesn't matter how long I stare at it. There will always be an error in my tweets. It just doesn't matter. I guess COVID does a better job of proofreading than I do. <laughs> and that is why mutations we've seen so far haven't changed the virus in a significant way, which means there's a really high chance the vaccines that are out now or will be out very soon will still be effective next year when the rest of us are actually finally getting around to receiving this thing. And scientists are also really optimistic that the mRNA vaccines could be modified quickly. So if there's ever a new strain that does seem to be evading the vaccines that we have now, we could probably overcome that hurdle more quickly than the time it takes us to get a new vaccine in the first place. Right. The beauty of mRNA vaccines is that you can just sort of cassette in a new gene sequence. It's one of the reasons we could get vaccines out so quickly, because scientists had already been working on similar vaccines for other types of coronaviruses. And so once COVID arose, they could kind of just like quickly pivot to that and just cassette in a new sequence. So if and, you know, this is a really big if the current vaccines aren't as effective against this new South African strain. I know some scientists have said they could come up with a new vaccine for this specific strain in as little as six weeks. But all that being said, what do we know about how long immunity will last from any of the vaccines that are currently on the market? Uh, one of our listeners, Yale Park from Arizona, had a question about that. Is the vaccine something to be taken once, a shot that needs to be taken once every few years, or will it be something needed seasonally, like the flu shot? It all really depends on how long immunity from the vaccines last, and we don't know that yet. You know, we don't know how well these vaccines are going to prevent you spreading the virus, even if you don't get sick, because there is a reasonable possibility that a virus could hang out in parts of your nose or throat where it is on one side of a mucus barrier. So it can't get into your body enough to trigger your immune system to trigger this vaccine memory to fight it but it's still in far enough that it could replicate and get coughed out. And that's a thing that could absolutely happen, but we don't know how big of a risk that is yet. And researchers like Dr. Bhattacharya are pretty sure that it's going to prevent transmission, but just how much, we don't know. And that affects everything from 
how quickly we can get our lives back to normal to who should be prioritized first in rolling the vaccines out. There are all of these questions and we just kind of have to monitor things and figure it out. I feel like the biggest takeaway from our conversation today is be patient. We all want answers right now, but at the end of the day, there's just still, you know, research that needs to be done and we need to follow people who've gotten the vaccine and and, and watch for those transmission rates and do more tests to see when kids can get it and, and so on. Right. I mean, it. nobody wants to be patient. I don't want to be patient. I want to go back to like normal life, but... You know, patience is what we are sort of left with. Right. Well, Maggie, thank you as always for all of your sage wisdom and all of your hard work reporting on this and answering our our listeners' questions. Um, It's always so great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. This has been really interesting stuff to learn. And I'm, I mean, as annoyed that I am to have to wait to find things out, I'm also excited to find things out. Patience is a virtue, Maggie. That's what you've been telling me (laughs) this entire day. (laughs) No more messages. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Thanks to all of you who submitted questions. They were really wonderful. And if we didn't get to your question this week, tune in next week because we may just answer it then. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. And please, please don't cut the vaccine line. <laughs>